We're so glad that our voices and our hearts are united together this morning. I'd like to just pray, uh, offer prayer, and then we're going to read through the scripture for today. And uh, then we're just going to go through uh, the passage for today as well. And hopefully it'll be encouraging to you as it's been to me. So will you join me in prayer? Father God, we thank you so much again that, uh, that you can bring us together in ways that we never would have thought possible, especially years ago, Lord. It's, it's unfathomable that we can connect with one another across the globe uh, to shrink the distance. And uh, Lord, as we're shrinking the distance technologically, uh, we ask even more that you would shrink the distance between us um, in familiarity and in heart, Lord, that, uh, that we would be reminded that uh, the church is not somewhere that we go, Lord. It is your people. Uh, the Spirit of God inhabits your people, Lord. We are um, the temple of the Holy Spirit. And so, Lord, as we gather together, even as we're far apart, Lord, we know that you bind us together by your Spirit, and we're so thankful for that. Lord, we know that we are alive in a time and in a season that for many is, is frightening, Lord, is unsettling. And uh, Lord, as we go through the book of Judges, um, will you help us see that, uh, that we as a people, Lord, your people are always people born out of adversity. Lord, your people are a suffering people because we have a suffering Savior. So Lord, as this season uh, comes to us, pray that it wouldn't be a strange thing to us, Lord, as though we, we feel uh, immune to uh, such tragedy, Lord, but we would rise up as your people confident that you are in control, confident that you know the end from the beginning, Lord, and you have ordained all things for your glory and for the good of your people. So, Lord, as we um, even just partake in your common grace, Lord, of, of life and, and uh, the ability, Lord, to interact with people and to enjoy food and to enjoy company, Lord, all these things that we take for granted in this season, Lord, may we see just the beauty of you calling us to yourself. Lord, we ask for um, understanding this morning as we come to your word. Lord, we understand, uh, we understand that many people right now um, are struggling and need comfort. Lord, we pray for those who are currently struggling uh, with this virus. Lord, may you bring health to them. May you heal their bodies. Lord, we pray for those who are grieving. Uh, would you uh, step in and give them comfort? Lord, most of all, we pray that through all this, that many, many people might call on Christ for salvation. So, Lord, this morning, as we gather, as we sit under your word, uh, pray that you would make us humble, Lord, and that you would speak to us exactly the way that you intend. Lord, impress upon our hearts the things that will bring you glory and will make us joyful in Christ. Lord, we love you and we praise your name. To Christ's name we pray. Amen. Amen. Well, Stonebridge, I'm going to ask you to turn this morning to Judges chapter 3. Um, you know, I, I gotta be honest with you, this is weird. It feels weird, right, um, to not be with you guys, to sit in a room that is relatively empty, but to know that you guys are there. So, you know, this is, this is a new experience for so many people, uh, especially as far as church is concerned, and uh, we don't want to get used to this either, right? This is not necessarily the way that it should be. The one thing, you'll notice things are different, and the part of that is because we, we don't want it to be uh, when, when this passes, however long that may be, where people just say like, hey, I can go to church just from my living room. We're meant to gather together. So uh, if you're like, hey, that's not what we usually do, there's, there's intent to that. 
This morning, I'm going to ask you to turn to the book of Judges, and you'll find that, that even this passage is extremely relevant to where we find ourselves right now. Judges chapter 3, I'm not going to make you stand right now, but uh, I would like to read through the entirety of this passage, uh, so it's going to be a little bit long, so hopefully you have your Bibles in front of you, um, and especially if you're gathered as a family this morning, uh, this is going to be a fun one. If you have middle school boys in your house, I know some of you guys have been waiting for this for quite some time, so... Uh, I just want to read Judges chapter 3, starting in verse 7. And the people of Israel did what was evil in the sight of the Lord. They forgot the Lord their God and served the Baals and the Asherah. Therefore the anger of the Lord was kindled against Israel, and he sold them into the hand of Cushan Rishathiam, king of Mesopotamia. And the people of Israel served Cushan Rishathiam eight years. But when the people of Israel cried out to the Lord, the Lord raised up a deliverer for the people of Israel who saved them. Othniel, the son of Kenaz, Caleb's younger brother. The spirit of the Lord was upon him, and he judged Israel. He went out to war, and the Lord gave Cushan-Rishathiam, king of Mesopotamia, into his hand, and his hand prevailed over Cushan-Rishathiam. So the land had rest 40 years. Then Othniel, son of Kenaz, died. And the people of Israel again did what was evil in the sight of the Lord. And the Lord strengthened Eglon, the king of Moab, against Israel because they had done what was evil in the sight of the Lord. He gathered to himself the Ammonites and the Amalekites and went and defeated Israel. And they took possession of the city of Palms. And the people of Israel served Eglon, the king of Moab, 18 years. Then the people of Israel cried out to the Lord, and the Lord raised up for them a deliverer, Ehud, the son of Gera, the Benjaminite, a left-handed man. The people of Israel sent tribute by him to Eglon, the king of Moab, and Ehud made for himself a sword with two edges, a cubit in length, and he bound it on his right thigh under his clothes. And he presented the tribute to Eglon, king of Moab. Now Eglon was a very fat man, and when Ehud had finished presenting the tribute, he sent away the people who carried the tribute, but he himself turned back at the idols near Gilgal and said, I have a secret message for you, O king. And he commanded silence. And all his attendants went out from his presence. And Ehud came to him as he was sitting alone in his cool roof chamber. And Ehud said, I have a message from God for you. And he arose from his seat. And Ehud reached with his left hand, took the sword from his right thigh, and thrust it into his belly. And the hilt also went in after the blade, and the fat closed over the blade. For he did not pull the sword out of his belly, and the dung came out. Then Ehud went out into the porch and closed the doors of the roof chamber behind him and locked them. When he had gone, the servants came, and when they saw that the doors of the roof chamber were locked, they thought, surely he's relieving himself in the closet of the cool chamber. And they waited till they were embarrassed. When he he still did not open the doors of the roof chamber, they took the key and opened them, and there lay their Lord dead on the floor. Ehud escaped while they delayed, and he passed beyond the idols and escaped to Sarah. When he arrived, he sounded the trumpet in the hill country of Ephraim. Then the people of Israel went down with him from the hill country, and he was their leader. And he said to them, follow after me, for the Lord has given your enemies, the Moabites, into your hand. So they went down after him and seized the fords of the Jordan against the Moabites and did not allow anyone to pass over. And they killed at that time about 10,000 of the Moabites, all strong, able-bodied men. Not a man escaped. So Moab was subdued that day under the hand of Israel. And the land had rest for 80 years. After him was Shamgar, the son of Anath, who killed 600 of the Philistines with an ox goad, and he also saved Israel. This is the word of the Lord. 
Let's pray and ask for understanding. God, we ask this morning that you might give us deep understanding from your word to even look past the amazing narratives into what's going on deeper than that, Lord, what points us to ultimately the gospel and to your sufficiency to work on behalf of your people. God, we ask for understanding and we humble ourselves this morning. It's in Christ's name we pray, amen. Amen. So where did we leave off? Where did we leave off with last week? Well, where we left off was in verse 7, right? What we understand in the verses before that is that God's people had intermarried with the cultures they were to drive out, and they relaxed on following God's instructions to flourishing. God was very specific with the Israelites. He said, here's the ways in which you're going to flourish, right, to to obey my commands. If you obey my commands, there's going to be blessing, But if you forsake my commands, there's going to be cursing. And as they were going into the land, he very specifically told them to drive out the inhabitants. But that didn't happen. If you look uh, at verse 5 in chapter 3, so the people of Israel lived among the Canaanites, the Hittites, the Amorites, the Perizzites, the Hevites, and the Jebusites, and their daughters they took to themselves for their wives, and their own daughters they gave to their sons, and they served their gods. See, once they finally experienced what God was leading them towards, they got lazy. They got complacent. They got comfortable. And it wasn't long before they started looking around them and saying, well, really, these people aren't that bad. Like, we were told that these people were evil and wicked and terrible, but the more that we've encountered them, the more we sort of, maybe they felt sorry for them. Maybe they started to think, we're not really that different, right? And so then they started intermarrying. Because if you can't drive them out, right, if you can't beat them, join them. And that's exactly what Israel did. And, you know, that's, that's very... Uh, That's also sort of foreshadowing the way that God's people would sort of mingle themselves with idols for a very long time. See, the book of Judges is, it's it's sort of a depressing book when you read through it because it's not like things get better. Things really get worse (laughs) over time. But what allows that to happen is, is comfort into complacency into compromise. See, David Jackman has said, a church that domesticates its God will soon become dull, boring, and ultimately irrelevant to the world outside. All it took, all it took for Israel to become irrelevant was to get comfortable. And comfort really is the undoing of God's people, right? We need to understand that. We tend to think that like when God loves us is when things are comfortable, but if you read through scripture, you can't back that up with any passage of scripture. (laughs) We're not meant to be comfortable. Again, we are people who are born in adversity, for adversity, When sin came into the world, we're not ever supposed to be fully comfortable in a world that's falling apart. There should always be a tension in us as we belong to God, knowing that things aren't as they should be. And that's what Israel should have known, but they didn't. Instead, they flirted with the world. They were called out of the midst of oppression. They were saved through the wilderness, but they always retained in their hearts a desire for an easy life. You'll remember that even as they were being taken out of Egypt, many of them, when they faced hardship, were like, why didn't you just leave us in Egypt? Or we want to go back because it was, it was comfortable, right? They were okay with, with a form of slavery, even, even though it meant like giving up their actual freedom. They were okay as long as life seemed more comfortable and, and easier. And this is where they find themselves again. See, mingling with the cultures led them to a loss of identity as God's peculiar people. Once they got comfortable with the people around them and the lifestyles that they saw around them, the culture, they lost their identity. And really, I mean, we can translate that to, to in many cases now, what what a lot of the the church has become in, in modern times. We've lost our identity. We've tried to 
hold on to being Christians or being God's people, and yet we reject the things that God calls us to. We reject the peculiar lifestyle that, that the Lord calls us to. And, and it's not like one generation of us does that. I know it's very, it's, it's very fashionable for us to just blame Gen Z or blame the millennials, but that's all of us. Comfort is our undoing. See, what we see in, in verse 7 is, and the people of Israel did what was evil in the sight of the Lord. When Israel started looking for other standards, right, when Israel started accepting the standards of the people around them, then they substituted gods that actually had no power, and, and then they put themselves under the loving but stern hand of God. So when Israel started flirting with sin, when Israel started ingratiating themselves to the culture around them, God wasn't going to allow them to stay there because God loves his people. And one of the things that we, we need to understand is God is, not, God is not bringing judgment on Israel in the book of Judges because God hates them, but because he, he loves them. Because he wants to call them back to himself. And, and you may know as well as I do, I experienced a time in my life where the, really the only way for me to understand how much God loved me was for God to take away everything that I thought was making life better. To take it all away. To make sure that there was nothing that I could look to that was going to be my salvation but the Lord himself. And it, that was painful. It's painful. And maybe you've experienced that as well. That you understand there are times where God needs to just raise down everything that we have in order for us to see him rightly. That's what we see in the book of Job, right? The end of the book of Job, after all his suffering, his response is, I had heard of you by hearing of the ear, but now my eye sees you. And so many times when God brings his judgment, it's a way to bring into focus his, his goodness when he shows us that all the things that we were trusting in can't ultimately fulfill us. And in love, God is going to teach Israel a lesson. And the lesson is this. The sin that you flirt with will ultimately own you. The sin we flirt with is going to own us. I know many of us think, well, that this is not that big a deal. I can stop any time I want. This is not a problem. But we see with many things, with many sins in life, it doesn't take very long for that to become a pattern. And once it's become a pattern, you're a slave to it. And, and that's where Israel was at, right? They had been set free from, from a certain type of slavery, from a physical slavery, but now they were in a, a spiritual slavery. They find themselves being enslaved to the gods around them that were not gods. And so, God lovingly is going to sell them into the hands of Kushan. They forgot the Lord their God, and they served the Baals and the Asherah. Therefore, the anger of the Lord was kindled against Israel. Now, you might say, think, well, wait a minute. I thought you said love. Yes, love. Because it, anger and love, really, they do go hand in hand. Like, when you love someone and you see that they are forsaking what's going to be for their good, it does make you angry, and it should make you angry. Not angry at the person, just angry, angry at the understanding that there's so much more that they were made for and could have, and instead they're choosing lesser things, right? That, that should make us angry, Right? Idolatry makes God angry because he called this people out for a certain purpose and they were selling that off, again, for, for comfort. So in order to break them out of this comfort, we see this repeating cycle in Judges, which we've already talked about, where uh, when the Israelites walk away from God, he brings in oppression and he uses pagan nations to do that, nations that are not uh, his people. So God sold them into the hands of Kushan, 
And this was eight years. The people of Israel served Cushan eight years. Eight years of indentured servanthood to this nation. That's a long time. We go through seasons oftentimes that are uncomfortable, but many of them are, are shorter, right? Eight years of serving this pagan nation. And in the middle of it, eventually they got uncomfortable enough to, to act, right? Remember, in Judges, we will see a cycle of God's faithfulness in light of the faithlessness of Israel. But there's a turning point in the cycle, and the turning point is this. Verse 9, but when the people of Israel cried out to the Lord, the Lord raised up a deliverer for the people of Israel who saved them. And this is what's going to happen every time. They're oppressed, and then what, what ends up happening is it boils up to the point where they're finally like, we can't, we can't take it anymore. God, we need to be saved. They come to an understanding that this is not a good way to live. And, and slavery to another nation is not a great way to live. When you were promised that land, when you know that God has more better things for you, what happens is it creates in you a longing for God to save. When the people of Israel cried out to the Lord, we see that in verse 9, we also see it in verse 15. This is a serious, agonizing plea for deliverance. This was not just some sort of like flippant, oh God, we would really like things to be different, right? This was an agonizing, crying out, many of them probably fasting, many of them distressed. The idea of crying out to God is this heartfelt, agonizing prayer where they're really saying, we know what we've done, we know that we're wrong, will you please make this stop? And the question that, that God brought up in my mind as I was reading through that is, how serious am I? when I'm in crisis. Because many times when I find myself in a situation that I've created because of my sin or because of my wandering from God, my repentance is, is you know, God, please, you know, I wish that this would stop. But I wonder how many of us in, in situations like even what's happening right now are setting aside the things that we used to think as, as important for, for a season of prayer, for fasting, for praying, for crying out to the Lord. I mean, weeping and begging that God would show himself mighty. Do we run to repentance and prayer before anything else? And then God's response is to raise up a deliverer. When Israel cried out to the Lord, the Lord raised up a deliverer for the people of Israel who saved them. And so in response to Israel crying out, repenting and praying to God, crying out to the God who uh, had set them apart as his people, God's response is to raise up a judge or a deliverer or a sort of mini savior who would take them through a period of time and give them rest. And so we're going to see the first three. And we're not going to go in great detail with the first three because there's bigger things that we need to address going on uh, behind the scenes here, but we are going to sort of touch on them and we're going to see something very important in these three. The first is Othniel, son of Caleb. Othniel, the son of Kenaz, Caleb's younger brother, the spirit of the Lord was upon him and he judged Israel. He went out to war and the Lord gave him Cushan, king of Mesopotamia, into his hand. His hand prevailed over Cushan. The land had rest for 40 years. Othniel um, was of the tribe of Judah, so he was pedigreed, right? Judah was, and if you look back in the beginning of the book, Judah were the first ones to actually accomplish their mission. They were given a mission. Uh, they were on it, and Judah is, of course, the tribe that the Savior would come from. So Judah is, you know, the pedigreed tribe. 
And the very first judge that we see is, is Othniel. Um, and so the Spirit of the Lord was upon him. We'll get to that again later. And he judged Israel. He went out to war. And the Lord worked, right? As this judge went, the Lord gave the king of Mesopotamia into his hand. His hand prevailed. And so the land had rest for 40 years. That's a long time. Rest for 40 years. But what we see again, even after Othniel, is rest always, bleeds, always breeds complacency. Rest always bleeds, breeds complacency. I can't talk. You guys are making me nervous. Rest always breeds complacency. So when the people of Israel get rest, right, this 40 years, you see another generation coming up, and, and what's happening is not a communication or not a reception of what God has done for them repeatedly. And so what happens again in verse 12, and the people of Israel again did what was evil in the sight of the Lord, and the Lord strengthened Eglon, the king of Moab, against Israel because they had done what was evil in the sight of the Lord. So they get comfortable again. They start ingratiating themselves to the Canaanites again, and then God says, okay, I've got to teach you again. I've got to bring you back to myself again. So the people cry out again. Verse 15, then the people of Israel cried out to the Lord. So God again brings Moab to them to rule over them. And this king named Eglon, who we know got lazy, got complacent himself, because it tells us that he ended up being like very, very fat. He would sit in his chamber and sort of orchestrate everything. And there were a country, uh, a regime that had gotten comfortable. God was using pagan nations to rule over Israel. But Ehud is an interesting story because he's, he's irregular, whereas Othniel was kind of the easy choice, right, of the tribe of Judah and, and a, a descendant of Caleb. So, like, we understand that there's a pedigree with Othniel. But with Ehud, it's a little bit different. What we see about Ehud, it, Lord raised up for them a deliverer, Ehud, the son of Gera, the Benjaminite, a left-handed man. Now, you might think, what, what does it matter that he's left-handed? Well, here's what it matters. Uh, the name Benjamin means son of the right hand. That's funny, right? Like, don't you love God's sense of humor? He raises up a left-handed man from a tribe that, that is the son of the right hand. So it's, it's meant to be uh, understanding that this is an irregular judge, right? And he's a sneaky assassin, which is really pretty cool. As you see this story unfold, this is one of the best narratives in Scripture, in, in my estimation. I think it's one of the best short narratives in Scripture. It's so rich. Uh, the language is so rich, and you feel like you're watching. It would be a great short movie. And so what we see is they're going to send a tribute to this fat king, Eglon, and Ehud is with the group that sends it. And so they take the tribute, Israel takes a tribute, but as the, the tribute group is going back, Ehud sort of waits around and he says, hey, I've got a secret message for you. Now, with a king that's already proud and full of himself, when somebody says, hey, I've got something extra special for you, he kind of perks up and maybe even hopes that it's more tribute or that it's some secret, like, spy knowledge that Ehud wants to give him because Eglon's just that great. You know, we don't have that part of the story filled in, but we, we like to think that maybe sometimes. But then Ehud wants to hear, so he sends all his uh, attendants away, and he says, okay, what do you have? And, and uh, Eglon sends them away, and Ehud says, I have a message for you. Now, we see that what Ehud did is he made a, a two-edged sword, and he made it just enough, just long enough and just short enough so that it would fit on his right thigh so that he could get to it easy. And when he leaned over, he could just grab it and stab. And that's exactly what we see. And he stabs it into Eglon, and it goes so far in. He was so big that literally his stomach closes over the whole sword. Like Ehud loses his sword because this dude was so big. That 
that's awesome and crazy. And then even one of the, the best short phrases, especially if you're a middle school boy, and the dung came out, right? He just split him open. I, I'm sorry if you got small kids and this is a little bit too much, but the Bible can tend to be a little bit more R-rated in certain passages, right? But this is a great story. It's an irregular judge, a sneaky assassin who was a left-handed man in a tribe of right-handed men. He was just a little off, right? And he was just brave enough that he gets away. They think, the attendants think that the, the king is staying too long in his bathroom. And so they said they were embarrassed because they wait and wait and wait. Now, if you've got kids, you know, especially when everybody's locked in the house, there have been times this week when you're knocking on the bathroom door and like, hello, this needs to be used by somebody else, right? And that's what was going on with Eglon. They was in there for too long. <laughs> and so once they get in there, they find he's dead. Ehud has taken off. And since the king is dead, now Ehud can rally the troops, right? Because he's been brave enough, he's been daring enough to do what nobody else would do. And so he rallies the troops, and then they go and take the rest of the enemy. And after they do that, they have rest for 80 years. 80 years. So you've got Othniel, who is sort of an easy choice. You've got Ehud, who is a, a little bit of an irregular choice, right? Because not not in the tribe of Judah, the tribe of Benjamin, who didn't complete their mission, and he's a left hand and the son of the right hand tribe. And then the last judge that we see in this, in this section, there's not much about him, but it's awesome, right? Verse 31, after him was Shamgar, the son of Anath, who killed 600 of the Philistines with an ox goad, and he also saved Israel. Now, that's it's very, very short, and our minds can run wild. There are great comic strips that that uh, our, our friend Jeremy Seifert has shared with me uh, that are like Philistines will be talking and Shamgar just comes out of nowhere and slays people. But understand this, Shamgar was not an Israelite. When it says the son of Anath, that was, that was a Canaanite tribe. So he wasn't even one of God's people, but God brought him in to do his work to deliver Israel when they needed a deliverer. See, God doesn't work in the ways that we think he should work, right? God doesn't even use the people that we think he should use. But you know this, right? Like, so he killed 600 Philistines with an ox goad. Now, an ox goad is like a cattle herder. So I like to think that this guy was a farmer. And if you're thinking, how in the world can anybody kill 600 people with a farm implement? If you know any farmers, you know exactly how that can happen. Right? I grew up, I grew up in central Illinois where everything is flat as far as you could see, and everybody is a farmer. And I'm telling you, this is not beyond understanding. Right? Uh, he's, he's like a superhuman farmer <laughs> that God uses to bring peace for Israel. So he's a, he's a Canaanite farmer, and God says, you know what, I'll just take you. And that really does show us that with God, one man is a majority, right? All it takes is one. And God doesn't really even need the one, but he's gracious enough to raise one up. So again, three stories, three very different judges and, and what, what can this show us? And I just want to share some thoughts with you guys, some big ideas that come out of this. Number one is even in the worst scenario, God is in control. Now, we look, we look at the book of Judges. We look at this passage here, and we tend to think, man, what a terrible thing. Like, in, in servitude for eight years, and then for 18 years under Moab. Like, th that's a long time. And because we are a culture that wants everything now, when we find ourselves in a situation like we're currently in, we want deliverance now. We don't want to wait. And so we assume that when things are bad, God must not be paying attention. God must not be in control because everything seems so out of control. But make no mistake about this. 
One of the things that the book of Judges and the whole Bible shows us is that even in the worst scenario, God is in control. Brothers and sisters, God is working all the time for the good of his people. He bestows his common grace even on the world. What's happening in the book of Judges is to bring people to repentance. And can I submit to you that what's happening right now is for exactly the same reason. So that the church can wake up. So that people might hear the gospel, maybe for the first time. That people who are afraid of death might hear the gospel for the first time and say, that sounds hopeful. That sounds almost too good to be true. Even in the worst scenario, God is in control. Second is this, repentance and prayer is always better than anything else that we could do. Repentance and prayer is always better than anything else we could do. I know in times like now and in times like the judges, right, we're, we're prone to think that the best thing that we can do is act, right? But you don't see the Israelites raising up by themselves. God sets, sets apart and appoints a judge. God's going to do his work in his way, right? The best thing that the Israelites could do was to repent and to pray and to cry out to the Lord. And I just wonder if we're doing that with all our might right now. This is a great time to make that our action to repent and to pray. It's always better than anything else we could do. You know, what I've seen flying around is 2 Chronicles 7, 14 has been flying around because, you know, it says that when there's, a, when there's no rain, when God withholds rain or when the locust comes or uh, when, there's, when there's an epidemic or a plague, that if my people who are called by my name will humble themselves and repent and, and pray, then I will heal their land. Now, I want you to understand that, like, in many cases, we're using that wrongly because that's in the context of the temple consecration. And that's not a specific prophecy so much as it's a general understanding for God's people that when you find yourself in a place where God is trying to right the ship with his people, the thing that we do is we repent and we pray and we throw ourselves down at the, at, at the mercy of God and we cry out to him, right? So as a general rule, is that what we should be doing? Absolutely, right? But through the epochs of time, God's people have found themselves in these situations over and over and over and the right response is always to pray. Repent and pray. The third thing is this. We cannot predict or control God. We see that with the three judges that, that God sets aside in this, in this chapter. Like, you can't predict what he's going to do. Because even though you, you might say, like, oh, Othniel makes a lot of sense, right? Ehud doesn't make a lot of sense. Shamgar makes even less sense. But God doesn't work the way that we think he should work. If you'll do me a favor and turn to 1 Corinthians chapter 1. 1 Corinthians chapter 1. Verse 28, I'm sorry, yeah, verse, First Corinthians chapter 1, God shows what is low and despised in the world, even things that are not, to bring not to nothing things that are, so that no human being might boast in the presence of God. And because of him you are in Christ Jesus, who became to us wisdom from God, righteousness and sanctification and redemption, so that, as it is written, let the one who boasts boast in the Lord. God doesn't work the way that we think he should work, right? We can't predict or control God. And many times, God will use things that shock us to call us back to himself. I want to share with you that in, in uh, 1665 in London, the last big wave of the, the plague moved through London. And the very next year, in 1666, there was a massive fire in London. Now, you can imagine 
1666, right? When there's a, a fire chasing a plague, you can imagine that many people were probably thinking, well, this is the end of the world, right? In the midst of that, one of the things that God was doing, there was a man named Thomas Vincent. He wrote this book called God's Terrible Voice in the City. And that was all about how like we could look at the plague and we could look at the fire as being these terrible things that are completely out of control or we could look at the plague and look at the fire as God's weird way of drawing our attention back to the fact that we are frail and that we have to find hope somewhere outside of this life, right? And many times God uses things that we would never predict and things that we can't control to show himself strong. And that should bring us encouragement. The next thing is this, and, and maybe this is the most important. When we think about the judges, they were called as deliverers, right? Like I said, many saviors. But what this should draw our eyes to is that Jesus has delivered his people from their greatest oppression. More than oppression from an enemy, from a pagan culture, is the oppression that we have in death. I want you to turn to Hebrews chapter 2. I'll give you time to get there. Hebrews chapter 2. Verses 14 and 15. Since therefore the children share in flesh and blood, he likewise, himself, Christ, partook of the same things that through death he might destroy the one who has the power of death, that is the devil, and deliver all those who through fear of death were subject to lifelong slavery. Now understand this. Jesus has delivered his people from their greatest oppression. More than any pagan nation ruling over us, more than, more than anything that we could face in this life, the greatest enemy that we have is death. The greatest oppression that we face is death. And, and Pastor Brandon and I talked about this even this week in, in answering a question. We, we have to understand that one of the things that's happening right now is we are face to face with our mortality. We're face to face with the understanding that we are not going to last forever here, right? This is not possibly the best life that we could have. There's something beyond this life, and we know that's true because when we find mortality and death that we're facing, we get uncomfortable and we start asking the question, what happens after this, right? People are afraid. But saints, what an amazing truth that Jesus has conquered the biggest oppressor that we will ever face, death. Fear of death has put all people into lifelong slavery. Jesus is the only one fit to deliver us. So this morning, one of the things that we need to grab a hold of, you know, and I know it sounds reductionistic to say this, but yeah, Jesus is the great judge. Jesus is the great deliverer. But even more specifically, the oppression that we find ourselves in, which is in many cases is our, is our own doing, right? We turn our eyes away from God. We forget that he is to be loved and feared and revered. And we have nation after nation who just says, well, God doesn't even exist. And, and it takes things like this for us to say, well, wait a minute. Maybe we're wrong. And then the hope comes in that even though we're facing death and our own mortality, Jesus says, you don't have to fear because I've won. I've conquered. Jesus is the deliverer that nobody ever would have expected. Even more than a, than a Canaanite farmer, who would have expected that the Savior would be God himself, clothed in flesh, would walk as a man, would be faithful, sinless, and give his life on a cross? That he would kill death itself and make a way for us to live in eternity with the God who created us. It's amazing. It's amazing. 
And before, before we close, I want, you, I want to show you one more thing. This phrase that we see in the book of Judges, the Spirit of God was upon him. This was an indication of someone empowered by God to deliver. Someone empowered by God to deliver. In Luke chapter 4, if you'll turn there quickly, Luke chapter 4, verses 18 and 19. And some of you know where I'm going with this. Jesus gets up in the middle of the synagogue and he unrolls the scroll. He's a little cryptic. Maybe not so much. He says, the spirit of the Lord is upon me. He's reading a passage of scripture. The spirit of the Lord is upon me because he has anointed me to proclaim good news to the poor. He has sent me to proclaim liberty to the captives, recovering of sight to the blind, to set at liberty those who are oppressed and to proclaim the year of the Lord's favor. See, Jesus says, the spirit of the Lord is upon me to deliver. Right? Jesus is our deliverer. Jesus delivers us from that oppression of the, the fear of death. But, but I want you to see this now. Like Jesus is our deliverer. He's our savior. The spirit of God was upon him. But if you go to Acts chapter one, Acts chapter one, he's talking to the disciples. Verse eight, but you will receive power when the Holy Spirit has come upon you and you will be my witnesses in Jerusalem and Judea and Samaria and to the ends of the earth. So in Luke chapter four, we see that Jesus declares himself as the deliverer. In Acts chapter one, as he's talking to his people and getting ready to ascend to the right hand of the Father, he says, now your job is to proclaim that deliverance. The Spirit will come upon you and you're gonna proclaim to everyone through the power of the Spirit that I am who I have said that I am, that I am the lone deliverer, that I am only the, the only one who can deliver these people from the oppression that they're facing from sin and from death, from the devil. The Spirit comes upon the apostles to proclaim. And now I want you to see this. Turn to 1 Peter chapter 4. 1 Peter chapter 4. Verses 12 through 14. Beloved, do not be surprised at the fiery trial when it comes upon you to test you as though something strange were happening to you. But rejoice insofar as you share Christ's sufferings, that you also may rejoice and be glad when his glory is revealed. If you're insulted for the name of Christ, you are blessed because the spirit of glory and of God rests upon you. And you know what's amazing about those three, those three passages? As we see the idea of the Spirit of God resting upon the deliverer in the book of Judges, and then we see that translated in Luke chapter 4 when Jesus says, that's me, I'm the deliverer. And then he tells the apostles in Acts chapter 1, guess what, guys, the Spirit of God is upon you to proclaim the deliverance that I bring. And then Peter amps that up again and says, hey, by the way, in identifying with Jesus, we find our victory. We find our deliverance, beloved don't think it's strange when you're going through something that's, that's a trial. And he says, instead, it's in those moments where the Spirit of God is resting upon you. In those moments where you identify with Christ in suffering, in trial, in tribulation, in persecution, in famine, in sword, that we, when we are in the middle of things, just like the things that are happening right now, we identify with the deliverance that we have in Christ as we find ourselves tracking the same thing that Jesus did, right? That we die to ourself and that we were raised with Christ. And as we consider Judges chapter three and the idea of a deliverer and the idea of God not using the ways that we think, again, God is fully in control. 
He does not work in the ways that we think that he should, but he has provided deliverance for, for his people. So the challenge for us today and every day, not just through an epi- a pandemic, not just through hard times, the challenge for us every day until Christ comes back is to live as though we are people who have been delivered. That's a good word. Let's pray. Lord, we thank you so much this morning. Um, Lord, and, and every morning, we thank you for the life that you've given to us. Lord, we thank you even more so for the new life that we have in Christ. Lord, I pray that it would be a comfort to us that you are in complete control. Lord, there is nothing that is happening that is out of your control. And instead of fretting, Lord, we should be taking comfort in knowing that you're working something together, Lord. Even through the tragedy, Lord, even through what seems to be a very dark time, Lord, we know that all is not lost. Lord, help us not to be surprised when you use strange things to draw our attention to you. Lord, I pray that repentance and prayer would always be our first option. I pray that we, before tragedy even strikes, Lord, that we would find ourselves on our knees crying out to you. Lord, we've already been delivered through Christ, but I pray that we would be crying out for the deliverance of those who don't yet know Jesus Christ. Father, we pray that you would use things like what's happening right now, Lord, this this oppression, this tragedy, a reminder that we are oppressed by death, Lord. Would you mobilize us by the power of your Holy Spirit, Lord, to proclaim to others deliverance and to live out, Lord, that we have been delivered by not being afraid of what we face, but by trusting in you. Lord, we mourn now. And it's appropriate for us to mourn, to be sad, but Lord, we will one day celebrate and feast. Lord, you will call us to a table in your presence where there is no sickness, there is no death, there's no pain, there's no separation. And Lord, you've given us a foretaste now by your Holy Spirit. Help us, of all people in the world, Lord, help us to be the ones who are living for a life that we've not fully seen yet. God, break our hearts and then restore us. Lord, we love you. In Christ's name we pray. Amen.